Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analyst Podcast. I'm Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Pat, it feels like it's been forever since we last talked, and pr- at least one or two things has occurred in the tech world since we've uh, since we've last uh, podcasted here. Yeah, so many weeks, so many shows, and, and in fact, I'm in my, my favorite show city of Las Vegas for another show <laughs> here for VMworld. So, good yeah, stuff. I'm now to... I'm heading out to Boston tomorrow to go to the uh, Siemens Analyst event, so I'm uh, very interested to see what that's going to turn out to be. Um, but yes, like we said, we got a lot of different stuff to touch on, so let's go ahead and jump into it uh, so we can squeeze as much into the time span we've got. Let's start with NVIDIA. They have had uh, quite a busy couple of weeks. They've launched a brand new GPU architecture. They launched two new families of graphics cards, one for professional users, one for gaming users. Uh, they launched the Quadro RTX family at SIGGRAPH. They launched the GeForce RTX series at Gamescom. Um, and this was kind of interesting. It was, uh, it was a, a unique two-tiered approach to the release. They, they announced the cards. They announced the architecture, you know, but they didn't really go into much detail at SIGGRAPH. They talked about the cards, and you know, you've got everything from a, a Quadro RTX 6000 down, that, that's, uh, or 8000 rather, that starts at like $10,000. You've got a Quadro 6000 that's uh, in the 5000 range, and it goes down to 2600 bucks or so for the, for the smaller chip. They didn't go into a whole bunch of details. They had some specs. They had some uh, uh, details on performance, but really they they left it they left it pretty 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 bland, knowing that um, the meat was going to be released really just the next week. Like I flew home from SIGGRAPH, I was home for forty four hours, and then flew to Germany for uh, for the Gamescom event where Nvidia was holding this. the The GeForce event was maybe more interesting in that they got into some of the details of the technology, some of the performance they talked about. Um, basically, the Turing architecture, as a quick summary, has uh, improved CUDA cores, improved regular shader processing, but then they're adding in the uh, custom area of tensor cores for AI processing and RT cores for ray tracing. And the RT cores are kind of a brand new thing. Tensor cores we have seen in the Volta architecture. It's kind of one of the things that has maintained NVIDIA's uh, dominant position in AI in the data center uh, on the Volta architecture and and kind of their ability to accelerate the standard kind of matrix math necessary for a lot of AI processing. So now they're adding that into Turing. Turing, rather, T-U-R-I-N-G, which is the architecture that will be for the Quadra family and the GeForce family. Uh, And in addition to that, the ray tracing elements are, it is a, they didn't go into a lot of detail on this. They're holding it very close to the chest here uh, about the acceleration structures that they have built in for ray tracing uh, to accelerate the actual traversal of the memory structure to basically find where um, the rays interact with the geometric bodies in uh, in a game engine or in a in a render uh, those types of things. So it was uh, it's it's really interesting. They on the GeForce line they've they've announced you know three different parts an RTX 2070, 2080, 2080 Ti. They've announced pricing, which was 
fairly expensive. The um, I think it's starts at four ninety nine. They say, but that's for the twenty seventy. The two parts that are launching first are the twenty eighty and the twenty eighty Ti. Those go as high as eleven ninety nine for the Founders Edition, uh, which is kind of the Nvidia built cooled uh, uh, version of the 2080 Ti, and that will actually probably be available first, uh, the Founders Editions themselves. Um, they had a lot of game developers on stage. Uh, during the keynote, they had, I think, three. They showed Battlefield Five, a new uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, and then Metro... I can't remember the name. Uh, Metro Exodus, I believe, was the game title for that. And all you know, in, using ray tracing. Some of them using um, tensor cores for a deep learning based anti-aliasing, super sampling and analog, uh, which was pretty interesting. They went into some more detail later in the week, uh, and then that's something we'll be able to talk about uh, later in September, actually. Um, but uh, it should be pretty interesting. They they put them on pre order. They're not actually for sale yet. We don't have final performance numbers of anything yet but i'm kind of curious you know i was there kind of absorbing it all directly from nvidia and all the other media and analysts in that group you were uh standing back a little bit kind of watching it all happen in real time i'm curious what your what your what your thoughts were on on how it was all presented yeah a few high level thoughts here ryan uh and you know there were a colossal amount of details that were provided i did tune into uh jensen's keynotes uh, but I wasn't there for for the full show. So first and foremost, I think it th- this shows NVIDIA's confidence, right? They're dripping out news as slowly as possible to get as much time in the sun as they possibly can. And um, you, you can do that when your competition or you feel like your competition isn't, isn't that, that close to you. So... Um, I, I, that's that's one observation. The second thing is is what we're looking at here is essentially fixed function uh, devices uh, or IP blocks being put on GPU cards uh, to raise the ante. And some of them are proprietary, and some of them have industry interfaces um, right. like uh, like this. So whether it's the the AI blocks or it's the ray tracing blocks, all those need to be written to specially to get the acceleration. Vertex doesn't go away. Uh, This is working in concert. Ray tracing is working in concert with vector operations and AI. And in fact, even when it comes to the denoising, NVIDIA is saying um, uh, AI through denoising is actually helping to limit the amount of ray tracing that that needs to be done so i think that's interesting i think macro you know if nvidia had had you know uh their way we we would all stop measuring vertex and move to ray tracing so uh but you know i i am really really excited uh to understand the vertex performance on today's games um right the the interesting thing is, yeah, all all the games that are are, are using these ray tracing features are um, they're all hybrid engines. They're using rasterization and they're using ray tracing. Ray tracing is supplementing it for better lighting, better reflections, better shadows, those types of effects. For now, um, and actually, Nvidia even admitted that for the foreseeable future, that's going to be what has to happen. I, I don't even think they honestly believe that 
to get the visual fidelity we get in today's games that you'd be able to go with a fully ray traced interface or or uh, game engine uh, on today's on today's hardware sometime in the future yes but uh, this is this is kind of like the first step and it is I think important to note as you as you started to bring up the the importance of, of the difference in the two like the ray tracing stuff I saw a lot of people comparing it to oh this is another Nvidia gameworks feature like uh, hairworks and you know two games are going to implement it it's going to detrimentally uh, affect the performance of AMD and that's the only the only reason for it and, and the difference this time is, Windows DirectX is implementing a ray tracing part of its API, right? Like DXR is a real thing. DX DirectX ray tracing is a real thing that will come with uh, RS5 update to Windows 10 later this fall. And when that happens, like it's a standardized part of DirectX. So now NVIDIA looks like they'll be the only one to, to like accelerate that capability uh, through dedicated hardware in their GPU. You know, it, older NVIDIA cards and AMD products will be able to run that code emulated back through like a GPU compute mentality, but it will be significantly, significantly slower. Um, so it's, it is a Microsoft standard. Vulkan will have an API extension as well for it. Uh, so there is difference there. The AI side is a little bit trickier. There is no, well, there's Windows ML, right? So that's another way that they'll be able to, developers will be able to access it, or you can go directly through um, the NVIDIA interfaces if you want. The DLSS stuff is pretty interesting. The deep learning super sampling, it's a really interesting combination of they, they get the game, uh, an early game build from the developer. They basically generate a bunch of uh, screenshots of what the game should look like if you run it at, say, 8K with 64K or 64X anti-aliasing, right? Things that might render one frame every six seconds or something. And they generate all these images. And then they feed them into their own AI supercomputers, and they have their own algorithms for this. And they're using a deep learning setup on their setup, on their systems. And then the resulting... Uh, algorithm gets downloaded to the machine of the gamer that gets implemented into the inference right portion of what these tensor cores can do. So it's it's really an NVIDIA creation all the way through. They say they're not charging game developers to do it. Uh, and it's something that will improve over time the more screenshots they add. Uh, but it is kind of a per game thing for now. You know, quality we'll have to see once we actually get our hands on the games what it what it actually does. But uh, it's it was impressive application of AI. And it's one of those things that I, after talking with a bunch of engineers there and software devs, I think the implications for artificial intelligence in gaming are, you know, intense, right? There's going to be a, a significant number of things that can, from animation to content creation, to visual fidelity, to interactions with game characters, all that will be, I think, will be impacted by AI and uh, AI acceleration uh, in the foreseeable future. It is. And as we stand back, I mean, we're finding better ways to, and I'll use even Jensen's terms, faking it, right? Essentially, by doing right. the super sampling, it's a way that you don't have to run a full-time, full 100% ray tracing, right? So these are ingenious ways to fake it, which that's not a bad thing, but just it, it, we have had the, the realism, and Jensen did a good job in his second speech at Gamescom going through uh, how things get faked uh, and, and what the pros and the cons are, are to that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and rasterization is is basically 
faking the, the the reality of of how light moves around and how images are created ray tracing more closely simulates that so you know i think we're, we're going to talk about this more once the reviews come out maybe once uh more details are released in september about the architecture and, and how it works and there's a lot of questions about how does it perform on today's games as opposed to games that are coming out in the future with this ray tracing capability they have a lot they have a lot to build up to based on the pricing that they implemented you know so um it's not you know they don't have a whole lot of competition right now on the high end which gives them this flexibility but uh it will be interesting to see Hey guys, Ryan here with a quick note to talk to you about the upcoming ARM TechCon event in San Jose this October. If you've never attended it, this is one of the last remaining true developer conferences of merit after the demise of the Intel Developer Forum a couple of years back. TechCon is expanding this year from the Santa Clara Convention Center to the San Jose Convention Center, making it easier to get around, find places to eat, etc. I think all very important for attendees. I was able to take part in the TechCon Technical Review Committee this year, rating and advising the content direction of the event, helping to make it relevant and impactful for those of us that are going to attend. There will be an emphasis on security, 5G technology and integration, AI edge processing, and a lot more. And because of my participation in the Technical Review Committee, Shrout Research has a number of free all-access passes currently valued at $999 for listeners of this podcast. Given the limited number of the passes we have and the value associated with them, I do ask that only those that are serious about attending take advantage of it. Also, if you live outside the Bay Area, you probably want to look into making your travel plans pretty soon. If you don't need to worry about the technical panels, the expo passes for TechCon are actually free. This gives you access to the keynotes and the expo floor, but the meat of the show will be in the panels and the range of session topics covered there. Following ARM's recent client roadmap news, Drew Henry is going to have a keynote that includes the reveal of ARM's server roadmap. That should be pretty interesting. Also, one of ARM's lead CPU architects, Peter Greenhog, will have a keynote on lessons learned from the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities. If you're interested in the offer and you want to take uh, advantage of these free all-access passes for ARM TechCon, you can email me at ryan at shroutresearch.com or hit me up with a note on Twitter. I'm just at Ryan Shrout. And uh, thanks to ARM for, for sponsoring this podcast and for offering up these killer passes for our listeners. Now, back to the podcast. Another big release that occurred since we last spoke is the launch of the second-generation Threadripper processors from AMD. And uh, this is not just, you know, taking the existing Threadripper systems, applying the Zen Plus architecture, the 12 nanometer introduction, and, and moving on. There's actually some surprising new things here, right? You have better uh, Precision Boost 2, uh, so you get better clock scaling across the entire usage of one thread, uh, you know, 64 threads as it turns out. And then obviously, as I just alluded to, we also have, we've gone from a maximum of 16 cores to a maximum of 32 cores and 64 threads on a single consumer processor, which is um, bordering on insane at this point. Um, it is. Every time uh, I hear the industry say insane, somehow we find a way, but I, I think we may have actually hit a really interesting place where, uh, you know, besides um, video editing, um, and rendering, and what else can we do with these? Yeah, there, there's an interesting 
deviation, right? So before we had just Threadripper with the second gen, we actually have Threadripper X series and WX series. And the X series is the uh, 12 core and 16 core parts. The uh, basically the improvements over the previous generation, whereas the WX series is the 24 and the 32 core offerings. And those, the W uh, signifies the workstation class that they are really in. Um, and AMD uh, was was trying to present this designation because there are some important and I think substantial differences in, in how those two classes of processors behave and act in Windows 10 and the different consumer application workloads. There, there's some things you need to, to pay attention to. For example, um, the default behavior in the 16-core or below Threadrippers is to run in Yuma, Unified Memory Address Space, so one single NUMA node, if you will, to the operating system. And that allows any thread to access uh, any other uh, core or thread and memory space uh, very easily. The application doesn't have to be specifically coded or optimized to to run on uh, you know different nodes um, the 32 core parts are not like that they are hard-coded at four NUMA nodes which basically means that there are four specific memory address spaces that the operating system is aware of and it is responsible for kind of attempting to balance where these threads go and and uh, which order they get placed on and which ones um, should have priority and it's a it's a difficult problem this kind of thread level management it's it's something that's been around in the days of multi-socket systems uh, and now we're just we're essentially looking at a you know multi-socket system on a single socket when you have when you have these thread ripper designs so some applications um, and in particular some uh, gaming actually perform worse by a noticeable margin on the 32 core part than they do on the 16 core part. at the same fr- yeah. at the same frequency yeah okay. yeah yeah, or within re- it's within a couple hundred megahertz, I think, and the but we're talking about like half the speed, uh, and and the reason that happens is because the game engine is not. Uh, creating threads in a way that the operating system is able to easily manage it. Maybe it's splitting them across different die. Two of the dies on a 32-core part don't have access to to DRAM. You know, they have to cross uh, through the Infinity Fabric to get to it. So there's a lot of complications there. Now, you can... There's a software fix for it where if you go in and you enable game mode, you essentially disable half or three-quarters of the cores on your WX part, and then you can game, and it's going to perform as good as any of the lower core count Threadrippers. But it is kind of a hassle to have to you know, change that setting, reboot your machine, and then, oh, I want to do work now. It's the next day. You've got to change that setting, reboot the machine. So there, there's, there's a little bit of elbow grease to, uh, uh, to get through that. Um, and I think as a result, the 2990WX, which is that highest end 32-core part, didn't get quite the reception that maybe a lot of people had hoped for. I think once all the rumors started coming out about a 32-core part, you know, the, the internet lit up with, uh, oh, this is going to totally demolish everything that Intel has done. And, you know, um, AMD's, you know, pushing this innovation boundary, which they definitely are, but there's just, as it turns out, Doing this is very hard, and there are some uh, there's some caveats to go along with it. There, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I guess I'm looking kind of at a glass half full. You know, I wasn't expecting perfection, and any time you use Numa like that, you're gonna you're gonna have that. So I guess my yeah. expectation was 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 not there, because essentially with Numa, you, it, it's Numa was developed for a multi-socket system. 
um, and was yep. developed with the first Opteron, at least on the x86 side. Um, and yeah, you're you're gonna have you're gonna have some delays. But when it does come to soaking up the cores um, uh, in an application that is is very well well threaded, uh, this is the one to go with. And I think users have a choice. And I think that that choice is 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 really really uh, good. Um, mm-hmm. I ran, I did some video tests, uh, and was seeing forty percent scaling with four K, and probably double that on eight K video, um, which might be lower than expected. But there are um, some tools that that better represent that. So yeah. Yeah, I I agree. In the in the areas that do utilize that 32 cores and 64 threads, the performance is astounding, right? If you look at the reviews that are out there, um, any any CPU based uh, ray trace rendering or anything like that is is going to be uh, a, a full leap ahead. Really, what Intel offers at at the top end, uh, and I think competition, innovation, in this workstation space is really what's going to get. AMD the potential to you know get their foot in the door to get into these big OEM systems as well. They needed something to differentiate, not just hey we're a couple hundred bucks cheaper. Uh, this actually separates them out from what Intel can do, um, at least for the foreseeable future. Until if and when Intel happens to uh, to react. Yeah, and what I expect is until they sign up those OEMs, they're going to leverage uh, the channel and smaller OEMs exactly in the way that they got the industry to gravitate to Opteron, right? Opteron didn't start with the large vendors like IBM and HP. It actually started with the system builders, and then the system builders started taking business away from the big OEMs. I think that's the only way we're going to see the uh, the big OEMs um, sign up for this. Right. Yeah. Um, Arm, ha- Arm not usually known for aggressive uh, uh, roadmap releases or news releases actually surprised us or, or surprised many, I guess, uh, talking about its roadmap and its plans to compete directly against Intel, which is, again, not something that they've ever really done before. We had, we had heard um, where we knew about the Cortex-A76 and what its plans were and, and how much... Um, impact it could possibly have on the notebook market, what it would maybe do for the high end of the smartphone market as well. Um, but not only did they go into more detail on that and talking about you know delivering laptop class performance or, or bringing more intelligence to the edge or cross-platform you know gaming and stuff, they talked about their roadmap, at least in general terms, uh, seven nanometer Deimos part, uh, seven and five nanometer Hercules parts, all with the same goal of improving performance while maintaining their uh, perf pour, perf pour, perf per millimeter and uh, per watt that they hold over Intel. Um, now, you know the the the. The laptop class performance comparison they're talking about basically looks at a 3 gigahertz projected performance of an A76 core against an Intel Core i5-7300U, 3.5 gigahertz turbo. Um, So I I think it's fair to say that Intel will still be the faster part 
if you look at the eighth gen series and what frequencies they're actually running at and all these different things. Uh, but the the difference now, the potential difference between what ARM and its partners are going to be able to do and what uh, Intel can do is going to be closing pretty quickly. Current course and speed, you're absolutely right. I, I love this move just because more competition is is better. And, and I think where ARM performance lacks right now is exactly what they're beefing up, which is integer uh, and uh, through IPC and architecture. So I like this move a lot. Uh, I'm hoping that this will motivate Intel uh, even more. I don't think AMD needs any motivation. Uh, no. I think a- AMD may be, you know, maybe having to reevaluate uh, power uh, and the types of parts they put out there because, you know, there is not an Intel or an AMD part anywhere that lasts uh, two days full work, right? Like right. the uh, right. like the 835 and and uh, and what's in the future. So where where ARM is coming in at is is good enough performance at the price and the form factor with incredible battery life. So yeah. um, I'm hoping that we see some good stuff out of Intel. Uh, I don't think it's any secret. All of Intel's new architectures are locked up in a 10 nanometer, which is, is, is sitting um, uh, a long time from now, a holiday yeah. of 2019. So, but any architectural improvements they may have made, any IPC improvements, graphics performance, um, we just won't see. And it, it appears that uh, the last run, Intel really put a focus on 15 watt, not four and a half watt or, or lower. So right. once again, we've got a multi, well, not once again, this is probably the biggest assault on Intel I've, I've ever seen, ever. I mean, it really is, right? Because they, they have AMD coming from the high end and down. Now they have ARM coming from the low end and up. Uh, it is, and and then they're having the the difficulty with um, process technology. It does make the make things very complicated for them. Uh, you know, I also wrote in the Market Watch piece that something that I don't think got a lot of a lot of thought in here is that this new ARM design is also really kind of targeting Apple. Now, ARM will never say this out loud because ARM is a customer and probably one of their biggest customers. But if you, if you probably if you talk to all the Android-based uh, uh, chip designers, right, the, the Qualcomm's, the MediaTek's, Huawei, whoever, Samsung, um, they're kind of tired of getting their their asses handed to them by Apple's custom core designs. And this has got to be at least partially an answer to that as well. That uh, that. That ARM wants to beef up its its other its competing partners to be able to you know more robustly hold their own in in the smartphone and, and tablet space. Do you think that's that's probably accurate? It absolutely is, and I'm glad you brought that up because my question for ARM over the last three years is how comfortable are you with the difference between Apple and your other licensees, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I on the out of the other side of my mouth with Apple, I'll say, "Hey, Apple, what what are you doing with all that performance?" Right? Sure. Um, I pick up the best of Android and I pick up the best of Apple, and I don't see a meaningful difference in the feel between them, uh, or some new killer app or use case that I can't do with Android. Sure. Uh, because I have you know, 50% less single threaded integer performance. So yeah, 
I, I just you know it's 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 just odd, and I'm I'm almost waiting for Apple to drop drop a shoe, you know, drop drop the next one, and but maybe they only want to build one chip for the iPad and and the iPhone, and they're going guns a blazing until maybe they can push Intel out of um, some of their SKUs. So yeah, because they certainly are using it. I mean, I can't. I can't think of anything that I I can't do uh, with uh, uh, you know a Samsung Note 9 that I can do with an iPhone. I can think of a lot of things on the other side, right? I can stick a a Galaxy into um, a Dex. I can stick a Galaxy into a VR headset. Um, yep. Anyways, yeah, that's true. Um, well, we can transition into one area where we we're starting to see some of Intel's response, right? So Intel uh, had a, their data center summit that you went to. Uh, they, you know, are, are aware of the pressure being placed on them by AMD and Epic. They are aware of the pressure of the security vulnerabilities and the 10 nanometer stress that they have. Uh, what did they really have to show and say for themselves, I guess? Yeah, this, this was uh, a, this was a, summit? yeah, this was a really in- interesting thing. So, uh, you said it correctly, data-centric, not data center. Oh, okay. uh, uh, actually, you did. You said it correctly, okay. um, but it's easy to... Um, data-centric businesses has been a way that Intel has been reporting their businesses for, uh, I think, about 18 months now. And essentially, it takes data center, adds IoT, uh, Nirvana... Uh, memory and storage and and a couple of other related uh, businesses so and first off it's you know 20 30 percent growth in in these data centric businesses also includes mobileye um, and this was for them to come out and and give us an update and I think they had to accomplish uh, a couple things here the first thing they had to accomplish was, they had to show that they were participating in a market that that is large and growing, and they have a good chance of getting business. And then an ancillary thing is they had to talk a little bit about how they were going to address the competition. So with that said, I would say the big announcements that came out is, is first of all, they talked about uh, in 2017, uh, Xeon did a billion dollars in revenue in, in AI. And... AI is measured through the types of workloads that are done, uh, inference, uh, and training. And I think that's a big deal because, you know, you put a number out there to industry analysts, financial analysts, and the press, they're going to dog you every quarter. Hey, Intel, uh, in Q4 of 2018, uh, how did you do in AI, right? So I feel that they must be very confident in, in what their future looks like in AI. And then, so what they did is they talked about uh, Cascade Lake, which is the 14 nanometer follow-on to Sky Lake, uh, where they added um, uh, a derivative out of AVX 512 unit called DL Boost. Um, And essentially what that does is is it improves inference uh, performance. Uh, I believe Intel said 10x from the uh, uh, the prior uh, generation. Uh, and then what they did is they added uh, a, a hybrid. Now, they didn't go into the details of this, but they call Cooper Lake a hybrid 14 nanometer, 10 nanometer. 
Interesting. Uh, where they added some training instructions called DL Boost B Float 16 uh, that they, they gave some really uh, big uh, numbers on, uh, as you would expect. Uh, and then the final thing they did is they talked about, uh, they confirmed that Ice Lake, they had always talked about 2019 being 10 nanometer, but they confirmed that uh, Ice Lake was second half uh, 2019. So hmm. they added a new part that's Cooper Lake. They added uh, inference uh, instruction and uh, a training instruction um, that they're getting uh, uh, programmers um, uh, to, to write to. Now, with all this said, I don't think anybody should expect that some instructions in the AVX unit are going to compete with the biggest discrete solution that NVIDIA has. It's just not. Right. Uh, I think what this is for is for those customers who, on inference side, uh, they either want to run the application and do inference on the same box at the same time, uh, or they can do their inference in the off hours. Uh, in, during the day, they're running transactions. At night, they're running inference. Uh, the same thing for BFLOAT 16 for, uh, for training. So uh, uh, Nirvana, which, by the way, there were, there were no new details on, uh, hmm. is really what is supposed to compete with uh, things like the NV100 uh, for, uh, for training. Uh, hmm. There was a little bit of, there wasn't a direct comparison to AMD, but I think that uh, things uh, like Optane, memory, the benefits of uh, dual core configurations and select solutions were, were aimed at people who are comparing uh, AMD uh, Epic with, uh, with Intel Xeon uh, in the future. So wasn't a direct comparison, and, and I think Intel's smart to not do a direct public comparison. Uh, and for what it's worth, when uh, Naveen Shinoy, who runs Data Center Group, got questioned, I actually liked his answer, which was essentially, listen, we take all uh, competition seriously. Um, you know, there, there are some elements that Epic is competitive, but... Uh, you know, we think we have the best roadmap now uh, for most workloads uh, and, and into the future. And you know, their stock went up uh, uh, after that. I think people felt uh, pretty comfortable with it. Um, okay. Putting the putting the the what Intel calls a, a mistake with, with what BK said with uh, Nomura, which said uh, AMD could get you know twenty percent market share before it gets interesting but uh, I thought it was a good I thought it was a good uh, good event it allayed some fears uh, you know there were there were some people who um, you know sell on the news and the whole second half 2019 ice lake versus first half 2019 um, I think was a, a disappointment to, to some people especially when mm-hmm. you have in when you have AMD coming out with a seven nanometer um, uh, Rome. Uh, in the yep. first half of 2019. Yeah, yeah, fairly early. Yeah. So uh, two other very quick uh, they, uh, announcements. They brought out uh, a smart NIC, which essentially uh, has intelligence, uh, has FPGAs in the cart itself to do uh, offloading. Uh, so it has to, ironically, touch Xeon less. Um, it's a <laughs> workload uh, off uh, offload. They also said that they had, they had already 
shipped a million uh, silicon photonics parts, which blew me away. Uh, the last update I got from them was it was delayed 18 months. <laughs> that was about okay. two years ago. Uh, kind of <laughs> never heard of them again, or maybe I wasn't paying attention. And finally, at the storage summit, which was right across the street, uh, they introduced some uh, QLC 3D NAND SKUs. So yeah, the QLC stuff is actually kind of interesting. Uh, they they uh, released consumer variants. They had and, and data center variants, and it's pretty high performance and and significant drops in uh, cost as well, bringing kind of the NVMe level perf down to SATA SATA prices. Um, pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, yeah. It you know it's just the sliding scale. You're not going to get the resiliency um, that everybody wants out of QLC, but theoretically yeah. you should be able to get a, a third more. Um, right. storage per yeah. square millimeter of dye. Sounds like uh, there was a lot of stuff at that event. That's interesting. It was, I'm sure we'll have more on it. Yeah, so. yeah it was, uh, there was a lot to chew on. So, uh, The last story we'll talk about for this episode is uh, related to Tesla. Not they're going private or they're not going <laughs> private now. Uh, none of that stuff. Let's instead talk about the technology angle of this where they essentially, Elon Musk confirmed um, both confirmed, one, that you need a huge amount of compute in order to get autonomous vehicles to work, uh, but they are also developing their own processor to do this. This is something that I think was kind of pseudo-confirmed at one point uh, last year. That's right. There was a uh, Jordan know, there was a Jordan Novit CNBC yeah. article that uh, uh, happened during Global Foundry's GTC event. And, oh, right. Uh, I think Jordan may have riffed off one of my tweets not ripped off, but rift. Because <laughs> I was there when uh, Sanjay Jha was talking about uh, all these different companies, and uh, but he had some uh, some sources uh, apparently at Tesla who told him what was going on. Right, and obviously you know, they had Jim Keller there, so it all it all kind of made sense. So now that they they. They've made some statements. It was during an earnings call where they talked about um, that their new chip was going to have 10x the performance of other chips without going into a bunch of detail. You wrote a good story about this on in one of your Forbes columns about um, you know the 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 kind of a vagueness of the claims leading us into not really knowing much about what their plans are, uh, especially if, if like you assert that they're, they're comparing the performance of this chip that they're working on to something that was developed three years ago. That's right. This reminds me so much, almost a carbon copy of Google's TPU, right? Where when Google TPU first came out, they compared it to like NVIDIA's old stuff, right? Not the new stuff. Yeah. And to give Google credit, they didn't have the chips uh, to do, to do the testing, but uh, in retrospect, they were they were not comparing the right chips. And mm-hmm. fast forward, uh, Tesla's doing the same thing. They're they're comparing to uh, likely comparing to older chips, just because there really aren't any other chips other than Mobileye uh, inside of these cars doing any type of meaningful processing. And Mobileye has more of a distributed camera processing than the way that Nvidia is doing it. So. Um, that's the first thing. And, and, and the second thing is, and this is more of a bigger picture item, which is is uh, why if you have somebody like NVIDIA spending billions uh, upon billions of R&D, what makes you think that, that you can pull off something that's either a lot better 
or a lot cheaper. Sure, uh, NVIDIA is rolling in the money uh, right now, but I don't think that their automotive margins are obscene. So the only reason you would probably do it is if you could narrow your use case uh, to something that is is very well well known. And the challenge though, because that usually it usually means you're going to implement ASICs, is that uh, ASICs aren't very forgiving, right? They're not programmable. They're not programmable uh, on the uh, uh, hardware side like FPGAs are. And by the way, most LiDAR systems today use FPGAs from Xilinx for the very reason that you have to reprogram these things if you make a mistake. And there have been updates to um, uh, the Xilinx FPGAs and LiDAR systems. So uh, the only thing that I can construe here is that they're they're narrowing the use case, which means that they would need a smaller chip, don't need all the features that are on NVIDIA uh, solutions uh, that would theoretically be cheaper and, and, and run cooler. The challenge, though, is, is that type of solution is probably less uh, programmatic. Uh, and if you insert some sort of a software layer... Uh, which is actually what Google is doing on, on, on TPU to make it a little bit more programmable, you, you slow it down. So net-net, uh, it seems like it appears that Tesla's taking a monumental risk on this uh, mm-hmm. in an area that, that they may not actually have to do that. You know, if, if two TPUs are a bust uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not like people are going to die and things aren't going to happen right sure they'll just move it off and do it on gpus like they normally do or cpus in in a closed environment like this where offload quick offload uh, is not available uh, you can't just magically start doing processing in the cloud with something different it seems like they're taking a big risk so i hope i'm wrong i hope uh, this thing is is magical and does everything it says I'll admit, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, uh, Musk and Tesla thought that version one was going to be self-driving. And then, oh, we need NVIDIA. We need more performance, right? And that's going to be self-driving. And oh, by the way, in 2017, we're going to do a coast-to-coast trip. Well, well, that never happened. Um, I don't know if you recall that. Oh, by the way, yeah, level four, level five, coast-to-coast. That didn't happen. So nope. here we are on version three, uh, uh, you know, and it's just hard for me to trust the same company that they can actually deliver the goods this time. Yeah, I think I think if you look at, at at a company like Tesla that has so many other problems that it's dealing with, from production to you know, let's say executive drama. Um, and you know, trying to plan out your roadmap, all this stuff. This this does just just doesn't seem like the thing you should be focusing on, right? Uh, there there was you know I I own disclosure I own and purchased a Model S back in 2015, and it was it was of this mindset of here's a company that is continuing to innovate. They've made all these promises. They've made some of this come true. The whole idea of autopilot seemed like magic at the time. But since then, they've been surpassed in a lot of those areas. If you look at what GM has done and what Mercedes has done, like they they have matched or exceeded some of those features. Not all, but but some of them. And 
they didn't spend billions and billions of dollars developing their own silicon, and they probably didn't even really spend much developing their own software platform. They were using people that have more experience that could get this kind of stuff up, up and running quicker. Now, I think part of this is that Elon and Tesla feel like they need to differentiate themselves still, and I think you do when you're the company that size that has the the financial issues and and the complications uh, that, that go along with it. Uh, but I, I agree that the the risk of Developing all of this being wrong, either being wrong meaning that it, it it's not viable for the purposes you developed on, and though you just wasted all of that money, or wrong in that it's not up to the standards and requirements that are necessary for something that you know you're putting your family into, and then then they can't use it is is I think they're both they're both equally equally problematic for them. Um, yeah, it's. You know, I, I wrote in my column that they should they should reconsider doing it. I think it's impossible that that's not on the table. Them kind of cutting back on this, especially if you look at the people that have left Tesla, including Keller and others, um, that that maybe that project is one that they at least are entertaining the idea should be should be left off. But. Yeah, and I can't I can't even remove uh, from possibility that some of these folks are leaving Tesla because it doesn't work or they don't agree with with this direction yeah i mean i don't want to start any rumors but it's you know there's reason people leave some of them are innocuous find better opportunities but also if you have a rash people leave they just don't believe in in what they're doing yeah they don't they don't believe in the direction that's there so it's possible i guess we'll we, I don't know. We may never know what happens. They, they could be in this perpetual state forever. We'll see. Uh, that is going to do it for us for this episode, everyone. You can find all of our back episodes at thetechanalysts.com. You can find us on iTunes or Google Play, and you can subscribe that way. So whenever we put out these new episodes, you are amongst the first to know about them. So we greatly appreciate everybody for listening in, and uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.